Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. How is this for stating the obvious? Jane Monheit makes beautiful music. Acclaimed as one of the quintessential jazz pop vocalists of her generation, Jane has performed here, there, and everywhere. Some highlights. Her first album, Never Never Land, released in 2000, was voted Best Recording Debut by Jazz Journalists Association and stayed on the Billboard Jazz chart for a year. In 2001, Come Dream With Me debuted at number one on the Billboard Jazz chart. Three years later, the Grammy-nominated Taking a Chance on Love, Jane's swinging debut album for Sony, featured a duet with Michael Buble. It seems that a year doesn't go by that she's not releasing another album. She's collaborated with a who's who in the world of jazz, including such heavyweights as Wynton Marsalis, John Pizzarelli, Ramsey Lewis. Jane's newest album, Come What May, celebrates her 20th year as a top recording artist, as well as her 20th wedding anniversary to drummer Rick Montalbano. There's so much to talk about. So let's meet and get to know Jane Monheit. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely from L.A. today. Well, thank you for having me. I want to get personal um, right up front because I'm going to make this about me. So back in the day... I was and still am a CBS Sunday morning lunatic. (laughs) I don't tape it. I want to watch it when it's on. And I have been addicted to this program. I can't tell you for how long. So as I started to say back in the day, the arts correspondent for CBS Sunday morning in the early 80s was Billy Taylor, the pianist, the composer, the recording artist. And he did a piece on you that I saw that so stuck with me and introduced me to you. And a couple of years later, I saw you perform live. And so at the risk of gushing, I can't tell you how great this is for me that you agreed to have a conversation. Well, thank you so much. That's so nice of you. (laughs) Well, I'm not usually a nice person, but it's the truth. Okay. I am (laughs) totally telling the truth. I often ask singers as well as actors, were you uh, performing in the barn in the backyard when you were growing up? Oh man. I mean, I was never not putting on the show. It was (laughs) just, yeah, it was never not only it was in my, uh, my parents had this room in the house that we called the fireplace room because it's where the fireplace was. And um, it was like a converted garage. And so the it had this big giant doorway into the rest of the house that almost looked like a proscenium. Mm. And so that was the stage. Mm-hmm. That was the stage. And so that's where all the shows happened. And my brother was cast in all of them and usually, you know, had to do ticketing and all the jobs <laughs> I didn't want to do. And that's how that went. Yeah. So you were the director as well as the star. Oh, yes. I And the musical director, I did everything, which I guess is this kind of the same as now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> where did you grow up? Long Island. Ah, okay. Yeah. How did you know you could sing? I, you know, I don't think I remember not knowing. I just always knew that that's what I was, was a singer. Um, since I was born, I've been a singer. And I think it's probably just because everyone told me so when I was little, the whole rest of my family could sing. So they weren't surprised that I could sing at all. But, you know, I think from the time I was really little, they could hear that I had good pitch and stuff like that. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they really encouraged me a lot. And they and they could see from the time I was born that I loved it. You know what I mean? Performing in every front of second. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Every minute I could. When I was really small, I can remember being in my stroller and my mother like 
we would walk down the street to the local farm stand all the time. And I would sing, I would sit in my stroller singing somewhere over the rainbow. And the guy who owned the farm stand would give me a peach. I That's remember crazy. That. That is yeah, crazy. I was already like working. I was already singing for my supper. <laughs> so it, it was such a natural act for you. Oh yeah. 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 I was just, I was this from day one. When you got into high school, whatever you were cast in all the plays, musicals, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, I was. And then girl. what happened to you at college? Where did you want to go to school? I only applied to one school um, because the voice teacher I wanted was there, Peter Eldridge um, of the New York Voices. So I applied to New, uh, Manhattan School of Music and got in and went and got my degree and boom. I mean, it was just, I didn't even think about it much. It was just like, well, of course I'm going to Manhattan School. And I applied and I got in and I did it and I graduated. And then I, you know, it almost just, it wasn't, didn't feel like a big deal. It was just the most natural thing in the world. What must that be like to look back over a career that just really took off at a young age? It's weird, especially because, you know, I've seen it happen to so many other people since. It's funny watching their journeys, you know, and and thinking like, I wonder if they're different because of stuff that happened with me. Hopefully I made things easier for the young ones because when I started, there were no young jazz singers on the scene who were very right. successful and the world kind of got mad at me hmm. a little bit. You know what I mean? There was a lot of uh, <clears throat> bad press about me being so young and all this kind of stuff. There was like, a what did you know, there. right? I mean, how, oh, yeah. could you, how could you feel that music, so to speak? That's, which I think is an absolutely ridiculous notion. I think jazz is for everyone mm-hmm. at every mm-hmm. age. It's about self-expression. It's about truth and sincerity, man. If we don't listen to young people, we're sunk. Right. You know what I mean? We got to listen to young people, especially culturally, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I think it's wonderful that jazz has now embraced y- young singers in a, in, a, in a bigger way. Who did you listen to when you were growing up what as artists all the greats um and the instrumentalists as well you know i was raised on a really broad spectrum of music it wasn't just jazz either i was getting a whole bunch of musical theater i was getting my dad's a bluegrass musician so i was getting a ton of that i was always getting taken to bluegrass festivals as a kid you know hmm. um so there's a real eclecticism in your music well Uh, There used to be more than there has been of late. Um, You know, the older I get, the more I realize that I'm just so dedicated to the Great American Songbook. And there's a whole lot of other stuff that I love to do, but the core is really the songbook. And it always has been, but now more than ever, you know. You know, as a non-singer, but as an appreciator and as a listener, the, the sexiness and the smokiness and the intimacy of jazz, as far as I'm concerned, can't be overstated. There's just, there's such a physical reaction for me when I listen to jazz. You know, it's a music that really is evocative of a lot of emotions in people. I mean, there's so much that we say with jazz. I mean, there's, yes, there's so many love songs, just endless love songs. But there are also artists making incredibly important social statements right Mm. now. Do you know what I mean? So there's, Mm -hmm. I mean, whatever you're looking for, if you're looking for happiness, if you're looking for justice, if you're looking for romance, you you know, you're going to find it in this music. When you graduated from the Manhattan School of Music, take us on your professional trajectory. What was that like? 
I was already all set when I graduated. Um, at the beginning of my senior year, I did this gigantic competition um, for what was then the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz. Now it's the Herbie Hancock Institute of Jazz. I'm still really involved with them. They're amazing people and they nurture young talent on this incredible level. They, you know, launched my career. It was at that competition that I met my first record label, my first manager. I was signed to William Morris immediately. And so that first album, Never Neverland, talk to us about how that was born. First albums, and I, I produce a lot of records for people, and I have a lot of vocal students that are working on records and things like that. And I tell them all this. Your first record is a collection of everything you ever loved. You're telling people who you are. It's all your favorite songs. It's the easiest record you'll ever make in your life is your first record. Because it's just your, it's a list of your favorite songs. It's here's, here's me. Welcome to the world. You know what I mean? You can do whatever you want on your first record. I was just going to say that. So you're the boss of you. Oh, I've always been the boss of me. Yeah. That somebody is not, and no pun intended, orchestrating what it is you're going to do. And oh, hell no. <laughs> never, <laughs> ever. I've never been told what to sing. Never. I'm, I've, no one has ever chosen a song for me. Describe Never Neverland. It was just one of those like Disney princess moments. You know what I mean? It was a dream come true um, to make that record. And, you know, everybody was proud of me and mm. the press went crazy. And it was, you know, it was this big moment. But like I said, there was also all this negative press about how young I was. I mean, there was a huge, like an eight page piece in the Times Magazine about how I was ruining jazz. No. You know, oh, yes, there was. But here's the joke of it. There was like a really nice picture that was a full page and that's all anyone remembers. <laughs> <laughs> no one remembers what that article is about. People come to me and they're like, oh, that wonderful piece in the Times. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Remember it however you want. You know, I don't mean to dwell on this, but I'm stunned. I mean, who the fuck are they to, to do this? How are you ruining jazz by virtue of your age? You couldn't feel those emotions? Is that it? And honestly, all I did was release an album. There are millions of albums released every year. There are millions of artists. Artists, there was no, there's room for everyone. There was no reason for this writer to get so mad at me. And he's quite a famous jazz writer as well, but, you know, whatever. Did he ever have an epiphany, turn it around or no? Uh, no, <laughs> but mm. that's fine. He's very yeah. nice to me in person. Oh, okay. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I and of course, know. I'm I, very nice to him. Well, see, I can. I may not remember what I had for dinner last night, but I can hold a grudge. Uh, <laughs> when you recorded Never Neverland, who were you recording with? I was assigned musicians for that record because I was very young. And, and this was key. This was extremely key to the entire beginning of everything. They put the biggest stars in jazz with me. They put the biggest stars in jazz with me. And that's why. I was able to gain so much attention, I think, so early because I had Ron Carter on that record. I had Kenny Barron on that record. I had Louis Nash on that record. I had Buggy Pizzarelli on that record. Wow. Wow. I had Fathead Newman and Hank Crawford on that record. I mean, it was insane because it was produced by the great Joel Dorn, who was a, was a legend, passed away a long time ago. Um, and I'm still, I miss him every day of my life. I will never not miss that man. But um, I could make records on my own now because of what I learned from him. You know. Isn't that wild? So, so it was so well received. Never, never land. As I said, best recording debut by the Jazz Journalists Association. And then, just a year later, came "Come Dream with Me." Was that just a very natural progression transition? Oh, yeah. 
Well, in jazz, you make a lot of records. You're, you're, we're prolific in this, in this music. So yeah, I made an album a year until 2005, mm-hmm. 2000, 2001, 2000. Uh, I think maybe I missed one year. Then I had another record in 2007. I had another record in 2008. I, I mean, I just made so many records, yeah, and then, yeah. which, is, which is why I took five years off before making the new one, Come What May. With the release of each album, that also meant a tour? Oh, no, the tour never stops. It's, we don't work like that in jazz. You don't like release a record and say, okay, I'm going to go on a tour now and go. It's like, we just never stop working. There, there, it's almost like, I mean, we use the word tour, but it's really just a nonstop like I, I basically was on tour for 20 years until the pandemic. Wow. I never stopped because we're in and out all the time because we can't route dates as well as like pop stars can and stuff. You know what I mean? So I can't put together a tour and say like, you know what? I'm playing New York tonight. So I really want to play New Jersey tomorrow. Make it happen. Like we can't do that in jazz. You know what I mean? So we have to take the gigs as they come. So it's like one night I'll play New York. That Like the last tour that I did before the pandemic. Uh-huh. The dates went like this. It was upstate New York, upstate New York, Connecticut. That was amazing because they were all together. Then New York City, I did a Birdland run. And that was like amazing because we were sort of in the same place for like a week and a half. Mm -hmm. Then I went to Austria for two days. Then I flew back to Florida, played that night, flew to another city in Florida the next day, played that night. Then the next day flew to Moscow for a rehearsal. Then Russia. Then the next day took a train to St. Petersburg for the gig and then flew home. Like that's what touring in jazz is normally like. You could park a truck in my mouth as I'm listening to you. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that, what we normally do. We are hardcore flyers. Why is that endemic to jazz? Well, it's just how we have to make a living because, you know, there aren't enough venues or people interested in this music to <laughs> route a tour with like a date, like with every city next to each other. You know, it's just not possible to do. When I saw you, you were not performing in an arena per se, but it was a very large theater. That's where I saw you as opposed to seeing you at Birdland or at the Carlisle or a much more intimate setting. And I'm curious, do you prefer one over the other? I don't really prefer one over the other. They're different, but I really love them both for different reasons. Although I got to say, the older I get, the more it's all the same. The more I've learned to bring them all those spaces together and treat them all the same way. Because I think it's important to you want your audience in the giant theater to feel the same as the audience in Blues Alley, where they're all like on top of you. You know what I mean? Oh, Blues Alley, best club in the world. I'm so upset about Blues Alley. And where is that? They're in DC. Um, and they're, you know, they've closed, you know, due to the pandemic. And it's like heart wrenching for us jazz musicians. But um, yeah, but the big theaters give you this feeling of like the lights and the stage and the orchestra and the, or the big band or whatever it is. And the perform it like you know it's those are your like childhood big stage dreams coming right through. right you know what i mean you sure. get to sing really loudly and like <laughs> you know that's where your little kid um fun kicks in um at least for me but you know when i saw you and again i feel like i'm you know i've come to praise caesar but it's all it's all sincere and legitimate in spite of the size of the theater there is this connection. There is this intimacy. I kind of feel like you were singing to me. Good. Then I did my job well. 
But, you know, it is a challenge, you know, and it's something that we have to think about. We don't want to get so lost in our own performances that we're not communicating with people anymore. The sexiness, the intimacy that I feel very much embraced by your music. That's such a wonderful thing. That That's so beautiful. Thank you so much. I love that image. That's wonderful. Well, it's really true. I want to know how you wound up marrying your drummer. Oh, we met in college. Oh, so it wasn't like uh, at a performance. And- oh, no, he's my college sweetheart. We've been together for 20, almost 25 years, 23 years we've been together. Um, since we were 20 years old, we're both 43. Did music bring you together? Is that what the tie that binds? I mean, everything did. The second we met, that was just it. You know, it was one of those like, oh, forget about it. You, It's you and me now for life. You know, it was just that, you know, we're just, we're Rick and Jane and it's like an impenetrable fortress of love. You know what I mean? It's oh, like, that's so great. That's but, so um, great. Yeah. I mean, he's the greatest in the universe and it's, it's like a coincidence that he's my drummer. You know what I mean? It's, I mean, and he's not my drummer because he's my husband. And that's important to st- to say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like if I didn't think he were right for the gig or if he weren't right for the gig anymore or something like that, we would not work together and we'd do other projects. We'd play together because we freaking love it. You know what mm-hmm, I mean? We really mm-hmm, do. Mm-hmm. And it's separate from our marriage. I have a feeling if our marriage fell apart, we'd still want to play together. You oh, know what wow. I mean? Like we, it's, they're separate things, but they're, they complement each other wonderfully. So explain that to me also. You, when you're doing a live gig, your musicians are all the same? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I mean, I've had to change that a bit. Um, I traveled with one band for, God, 400 million thousand years. And then airline tickets got to be so expensive that it got to be unmanageable for a lot mm-hmm. of jazz musicians. Mm-hmm. And so... So many of us now have like East Coast band, West Coast band kind of thing. Uh So I do that. I got a West Coast band that does the West Coast, like this half of the United States and Asia. And then I got an East Coast band that does that half of the United States and Europe. When it comes time to make a record, how does that work in terms of your band? My East Coast band is my core band. They're my real band. They're my forever band. And that's my husband, Mm -hmm. um, Michael Kanan on piano and Neil Minor on the bass. That being said, I have the most wonderful guys out here. Well, my husband does both coasts, obviously. Um, When my husband cannot travel to the East Coast with me because we have a child in school, I have an amazing drummer on the East Coast named Joe Strasser. He's a New York legend, unsung, but like people don't know outside of New York, but he's incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I have these amazing musicians out here, Max Hamer on the piano, David Robert on the bass. Actually, David Robert appears on the album because Neil Miner, I flew out my East Coast pianist for the album, but my bass player couldn't come because of the pandemic. For your newest, for Come What May. For the newest, yeah. So he had to come your way for Come What May. Yes, he did. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's really important to keep a core band together, especially on the albums, Mm -hmm. um, because it's your sound. Yeah. Your sound, it's who you are. It's, you know, what you've been bringing to the music. It's the story you're trying to tell. You can't just put a random cat behind you that's suddenly going to like, be able to read your mind and understand everything that's in your heart. You know what I mean? You have to have the right people. We're all best friends in real life. That's the thing. Like the East coast band is, and the West coast band is like, it's crazy. The like, and I need it that way. I need that love on stage. I need it. Mm -hmm. Like it Mm -hmm. works for me. I like to keep music and love in the same place. You know what I mean? (laughs) I wonder if that's not so typical. I, you know, that you might hear about fraught relationships or that, Things are just not working out so well. 
I don't know. I hear lots of good stories and bad from bands. You know what I mean? There's always, because it always gets personal. You're playing music together. It gets personal. You travel together. You're at the airport every day at 4 a.m. together. You know what I mean? You're like sleeping on each other on airplanes, like <laughs> long haul flights to Japan in coach in the back row, like drooling on each other's shoulder. You get <laughs> oh, close. You know what I mean? <laughs> What's that like to be performing in a foreign country? It's no different, really. It's no different because music is totally universal. I mean, yeah. it sounds cliche to say, but it is. No, but it's true. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, there's no language barrier anywhere. And also like, honestly, I've traveled the world so extensively and so many people speak English everywhere. Um, I think probably because of American songs and movies and television and all this kind of stuff I'm, and just better education in other countries. But, you know, there's just so much English spoken everywhere that there, I don't find that there's, I don't know. I don't find that I have communication barriers anywhere. Have you been responsible about bringing jazz into people's lives who wouldn't know it otherwise? Well, I have no idea, but I hope so. Mm -hmm. I hope so. I mean, we all want that, don't we? We all want the genre to grow for each other, you know, and for the world and all of that. But I mean, I don't know for sure, but I certainly hope so. I mean, I would imagine maybe due to some more popular things that I've done, Maybe some people have seen me that weren't normally jazz listeners, you know. Mm -hmm. That you've opened the door for them. Hopefully. You know, them. Mm -hmm. Maybe. I don't know. How did you wind up on the West Coast? Why are you in L.A.? I just love it here. My husband and I super love it here. We always have. We had a whole second life here. All of our, like, well, not all of our closest friends. I don't want to say that. We have amazing friends in New York, including my best, my, my best friends in the world are in New York. <laughs> and my best, 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 best friend is in Connecticut. But um, listen to me besting friends like I'm in fourth grade. Oh, come on. But, um, <laughs> but everybody has their person, right? Like mm -hmm. their person, person. And my person is in Connecticut. But now we just love it here, man. And, uh, you know, New York is, we'd been there a long time and it was just getting to be so expensive. Yeah. And uh, California is a dream. It's just, it's so. Even, even pandemic wise, it's a dream, huh? Yeah. I mean, it, we were stuck inside for a whole year, but the sun was shining in the windows. Yeah. You know, right. it's like we're. There's no snow on the ground. We're and super happy here. And, you know, our son is able to go to a wonderful school um, that like the likes of which we wouldn't have been able to find in New York affordably. Mm. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's just great. I'll never leave California. I'm in heaven here. Do you write your own music? No, I'm not a songwriter. I'm not, I've written songs, but I'm not, I write lyrics for people. Okay. Um, but I'm not a songwriter. I've realized that that's not my gift. I know this would be like asking you who's your favorite child, but what the hell, who do you like singing the most? Of the composers, of the great composers? Yes. That's impossible. I'd have to just say the great American songbook, like yeah. period. That out yeah. of any body of work, any genre, any style. Although I love to sing all genres. I love to sing pop music. I love to sing folk music. Mm. You know what I mean? But ultimately it's the great American songbook. Like that batch of composers are just all equal and they're my universe, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when it comes time to record albums and you've done so many of them, in other words, there's just so many songs out there that you haven't recorded, that you've sung, but maybe have not been on an album. You know, the, the songs that I pick are always just the gut punch songs of the moment. You know, I always know what to do. I don't question it. It's like... And it's uh, innate. 
Yeah. Like a song I'll have known my entire life. It'll suddenly just present itself as like, well, it's time now. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, Mm. you know, it's time now. now. You know, you had the right idea for the arrangement. You played it in a show and it was a really magical moment or whatever it is. It's, but I, it's all very gut led. I'm not going, well, I think this would appeal to the masses right now. Like I'm not doing any of that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, I love this song. It's that simple. <laughs> who, did that you, simple. Who, who was it that you listened to when you were growing up? My ultimate is Ella Fitzgerald. As, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that's pretty common knowledge, um, especially because I made a tribute album to her right before this one. But um, yeah, she's my like ultimate goddess. Judy Garland, you know, all the jazz greats are are really just such a huge part of my education. But there's more than that. There's the people outside of jazz that were a huge influence. Bonnie Raitt, massive influence. Hmm. Bernadette Peters, massive influence. So many of the great Broadway singers, even some of the great sopranos, you know, have influenced my technique. I used to do a lot of musical theater. So I was really obsessed with the great ladies, Rebecca Luger, Judy Kuhn, you know, Mm -hmm. these kind of women. Mm -hmm heroes, heroes of mine. And so I think you can still hear a lot of that in the way I sing. I let the musical theater influences out. I don't try to cultivate any kind of quote unquote jazz sound. I think that's a ridiculous idea. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think we should all just sing as honestly as possible. So I think all of those other influences do come out, you know, when I'm singing the songbook. Do you sing every day? Well, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I don't like formally sing. I'm not like, la, 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 la. Like I'm not, I don't, I don't have like a thing of exercises that I do every day or anything like that. Partially because I'm in a small apartment in the pandemic and my neighbors don't like it one bit. What? Oh, no, no, do no. Do no. who you are? No. Oh, well, I'm not famous. I'm a jazz musician. You know what I mean? So they're like all regular folks and they're like, we don't want singing. Shut up. You know what I mean? (laughs) This is my naivete. I don't honestly, and I mean it sincerely. I don't get it that you (laughs) say those three words. I'm not famous. I'm not. It was never a goal. I mean, I feel so lucky. Like I've made 11 records, man. That, I mean, I'm 43 years old. I've made 11 records. Like that's huge. That's huge. Really awesome. Yes. That's all I need. You know, that's all I need. You could have a sandwich board with that printed on it and and, and wander around the street. <laughs> and I'll just go stand like on a freeway overpass and just wave <laughs> at people below. Right. Or, you yeah. know, when you're in the supermarket online, it doesn't matter. I yes, just, I will. I will just wear a sign around my neck. I've made 11 albums. So although I'm in L.A., <laughs> so everyone else would be like, yeah, I made 12. Right. <laughs> right, right. So what's what's the untapped for you? Speaking of 12, now you've made 11 albums. What do you what do you see for yourself for album number 12? Cheaper by the dozen here. I have no idea. Like there are no plans yet. We are really, really focused on that record right now. My label, Club 44 Records, has been amazing. Um, I, In terms of getting the word out? Oh, my God. And just being amazing people. I mean, just wonderful human beings. And when I tell you that completely changes the work experience. Now, I've worked with a lot of amazing people over the years. You know what I mean? I've been really lucky. I've worked with a lot of nice folks that I'm still really friendly with. But this current situation is just like heaven. You know what I mean? It's totally heaven. Listen, nobody suffers fools gladly. I mean, if you were a bitch and difficult to work with, nobody would <laughs> want to do that with you. Well, you I know? try to not be difficult. You know what I mean? I figure we're all in this business. We're all a part of this, right? Because we love it. So, And you, it's bigger than you. You have to do it. You can't not sing. 
So why would we ever want to be jerks to each other? You know what I mean? It's like, we all want to make life easy for each other and like hang together and make it all work. And like, we're all supporting each other. And it's like, I don't know. I think it's a beautiful thing to be a part of. I tell my students too, I'm like, you're coming into a friendly part of this genre. Your fellow musicians are kind. They are Mm. good people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're going to run into industry folks that are going to be a pain in your butt, but that's that comes with the territory. You're also going to run into a majority of industry folks that are amazing humans that are, you know, it's like, this is a, it's a really good time to be in jazz. It's a friendly community. At least it feels that way for me. And that, so you're enveloped by it and we're enveloped by it. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. I'm happy. You know, that's great. Talk to me about students. What are you, what are you teaching? Well, I coach, you know, young jazz singers, older jazz singers, jazz singers my age, all different kinds of jazz singers. I love them. (laughs) I have so many students that I just, I adore them. I love teaching. Honestly, if anybody wants to book a lesson, you just email me at janemonheitlessons uh, at gmail.com. I have a lessons email that's on my Instagram Mm -hmm. and people contact me there. And I, you know, I think teaching is something that's really part of the history of jazz. Right. It's important that we pass things down. It's tradition. It's something Mm -hmm. that all of us do. Mm -hmm. Like for any young musicians that are listening, I will tell you right now, you can book a lesson with anyone you want. We all teach. Just seek out your heroes on social media and try to book a lesson because you'll be able to. You know what I mean? Yeah. And here's the thing, like we were all teaching online before the pandemic too. You know what I mean? Because it's jazz is so international. So you know, this, all of us teaching and, you know, being on Zoom internationally with students and all of this, it's not going to end with the pandemic. I really encourage, you know, musicians of any age and ability level to reach out to their heroes and, and ask for those lessons because it's really possible. What's it like to make an album in terms of, is there a theme? What songs I want to include on it? How does that work? Well, the same way your first record is doing anything you want, basically, and it's like your welcome to the world moment, every album after that has to be some sort of idea or theme or concept. Um, there has to be a marketing angle. There has to be. It's a business. You know what I mean? It's part of what we do. We have to think about stuff like that. I mean, my first three albums, my, my second two were not super themed because we hadn't really moved into that phase of the industry yet. Now, every time you get on stage, the show has to have like a title. Well, that's a little more cabaret, but I have a foot in that world as well. You know, for instance, like my new album, Come What May sort of has a, a varied theme. You know what I mean? It's like, I was, you know, planning on making this record about maturity, singing songs that I, you know, uh, I'm a l- kind of old enough to sing now. Right. I've lived enough to sing now. Mm-hmm, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But then yeah. the pandemic crept in, you know what I mean? And so there are two songs in the album that are literally just about how much I miss traveling. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But it's like, it has to be, there has to be some sort of angle. And so that has to be thought about, you know, and it's, I, I look at all of these things as part of the fun. My God, your glass is half full when it comes to attitude. It's wonderful. It's just this pure delight and joy. I think I had to get there. You know, I think I was darker when I was younger because my career was unmanageable. It was 
Things were moving so quickly. I had more tour dates than I could handle. I never slept. It was, I was losing my voice all the time. It was outrageous. You know what I mean? So that was like in my late twenties, that was the time when I was having a hard time with things. But now that I'm older and, you know, I can control my career and I have things the way I want them. Yeah. I was going to say you're more in control for sure. I mean, I was in control then too, but I didn't know. I was never going to say no. Mm Mm-hmm to a right. date or an interview or anything. I was never going to say no. Of know? course not. I was a childless, you know, young woman in my 20s, raring to go. But it was too much at a certain point. Yeah. What do you see for yourself post-pandemic? What is it you want to do? If I was your fairy godmother, although you certainly don't need me, what would you say to me? What would you ask of me? I would ask you to sprinkle tour dates all over my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> Anywhere? You, wherever? All over the, I'm just dying to get back on the road. All planet wide, please. <laughs> I miss everywhere. <laughs> I can't wait to get back on the road. Oh, I think that's great. And hopefully that's going to come sooner rather than later that we can yes. forget you being on the road, that we can be in the seats in the I audience. I mean, hey, it's nice that it's about you, but it's about us too. <laughs> For Definitely. sure. I know that your album just came out, but are you always looking ahead? I sort of have like my next two kind of mapped out in my head right now, but that doesn't mean that they'll happen because just because I have ideas doesn't mean they'll be right for the time or whatever. So I don't want to say what I'm thinking because I don't want to like, you know, bum anybody out, but I have the next two. If I can do what I'm planning, I know what I want to do for the next two. It is just been nothing short of my pleasure to meet and get to know you. Um, Mine too. Off stage, I can't thank you enough for sharing your life and your work and your passion with us. It's just been terrific, Jane. Well, thank you so much for having me. Really, I appreciate it. What better way to end this conversation than with a Jane Monheit song? What do you think we should play? Well, this is the opener for the album, and. I knew this was the opener from the minute we recorded it because it's just such a swinging, happy, just good time. This is called I Believe in You. You have the cool, clear eyes of a seeker of wisdom and truth. Yeah, there's that up turn. And the grin of impetuous youth There's that slam.